0: Before I get started, I will be leaving out the many hyperlink references uh, throughout this uh, article. I will also leave out all of the uh, images, maps, photos, and I will also leave out Appendix 1. So if you want to see all of this information, please go to the uh, written article uh, on my website, uh, and it will be referenced throughout my social media, uh, uh, and everywhere, everywhere, everywhere else that this is posted. So here we go. A critique of the recent article in the New Yorker magazine by Evan Osnos called China's Age of Malaise. In, in the China Writers Group, CWG, which I founded, we exchange a lot of information and articles together. Asking for comments, a member posted the recent article in the New Yorker magazine by Evan Osnos, which covers China and President Xi Jinping, China's age of malaise. At 10,000 words, I read it once straight through without giving it much thought. My comment to CWG was that the people Osnos talks to would not even be known by 99% of the Chinese people. And even if they did know them or anyone else like them, they couldn't care less what they thought. Then I went back and read it again, studying it more carefully, his analysis of Xi Jinping, as well as his contextualization of China's future based on what he heard. A critique of his article uh, was needed. Naturally, to write an article like this, I needed to do research about the author, Mr. Osnos. His biography on his website does not even mention that he is a Harvard graduate or where he grew up, maybe for a reason. What I found is that he comes from a very privileged background that not only 99% of the Chinese people could not relate to, but 99% of the rest of humanity as well. He grew up in Greenwich, Connecticut, USA, which I hardly even knew except for the name. I was surprised to learn that Greenwich, Connecticut is home to two of the wealthiest zip codes in Connecticut, 06830 and 06831, with average adjusted gross incomes of $638,560 dollars and $721,550. The median list price for a home in the town was $2.3 million in 2021. The coastal neighborhood of Belhaven, along with backcountry, have some of the wealthiest single-family real estate in the world. In 2014, the highest asking price for a residential property in town was the Copper Beach Estate at $190 million. It later sold for $120 million. For comparison, where I grew up in the U.S. state of Oklahoma, the average annual income is $49,657 or about 14 times less. I like to joke that if it were not for the NBA Oklahoma City Thunder Team, and the multimillionaires playing there, it would be much less. For $2.3 million, I can buy 10 nice 200-square-meter 200, 200 or 2,000-square-foot ranch homes in one of the pleasant suburb, suburban neighborhoods in Oklahoma City. I have never had a neighbor who had to settle for a measly $120 million to sell their house. I cannot even begin to wrap my head around the idea. Evan comes from from a very elite, thoroughbred background. His father went to Brandis, whose annual cost is $86,242, as well as Columbia School of Journalism in Midtown Manhattan, New York City. It costs a cool $126,691 per year. Dad was a star journalist and publisher, who rubs shoulders with many famous people we read about in the media. His mother's father was a U.S. ambassador. She is chair of the board of CIVIC, C-I-V-I-C, the uh, acronym for the Center for Civilians in Conflict. It receives funding from George Soros' Open Society Foundations and the latter's president, Emeritius, is on CIVIC's board. As well, Charles Koch Institute also contributes to Civic. Those of us who are informed about Soros and Koch, with their money and NGOs having fingers deep in so many color color, color revolutions around the world, would run away from them and their money. As mentioned, Evan went to Harvard, which costs $88,881 per year to attend His wife studied at Barnard College, again $80,693 per year. Osnos is a senior fellow at Brookings Institute. In Appendix 1, I list some of its major contributors. Again, most of us would not be caught dead owing our allegiance to much of this roster. Donors do expect the correct outcomes. It focuses the New Yorker magazine's long-time support for NATO's genocidal and imperial operations around the world, going back to Iraq's destruction in in 2003, up to today's Western wars against Russia and the Arab world. It helps explain why his online biographies often do not even mention he graduated from Harvard, magna cum laude, much less all the rest of the above. It would put a dent in his projected plebeian New Yorker magazine moniker of a reporter at large. Like he got a journo degree at humble Oklahoma State University, his first job was with a local newspaper, the nearby Muskogee Phoenix, and finally he got his big break by being hired at Channel 8 TV station in nearby Tulsa. In reality, this is a typical career path for the less privileged who work in the mainstream media. After learning all this, reading his recent article on China and Xi Jinping makes much more sense. His wealthy, elite, sheltered life is alien to most of us, as our lives are surely to his. In his essay, China's Age of Malays, Asnos interviewed the following people. And to the best of my deduction, I added an NC, non mainland Chinese, to those that I thought fit that category. Number one, a sociologist, wife of a famous Chinese author, the latter who got her graduate degree in the US. Two, Chinese cover band playing only American rock. Three, an intellectual. Four, a lib- liberal bookstore owner in Shanghai. Number five, Rhodium Group Representative, non-Chinese. This is a U.S. outfit that does its annual China Pathfinder Scorecard for the Uber Neocon Wall Street Atlantic Council. Number six, President Emeritus of the European Union Chamber of Commerce in China, another non-mainland Chinese. Seven, an entrepreneur. Uh, Eight, a prominent Australian historian and a translator, non-Chinese. Number nine, Beijing bar owners. Number 10, a Shanghai man. Number 11, a Shanghai businessman. Number 12, a business executive. Number 13, a microchip engineer. Number 14, a man in a Beijing bar. Number 15, a 24-year-old master's degree student in linguistics. Number 16, a financier. Number 17, a real estate developer. Number 18, a factory owner in Shanghai. Number 19, a Chinese investor living overseas. Number 20, a woman sharing her family's COVID experience. Number 21, an an, an entertainer in Shanghai. Number 22, a respected writer. Number 23, a woman who injured herself badly by vandalizing public property. Number 24, an entrepreneur speaking for the top 0.01%. Number 25, a technologist. Number 26, a man in Beijing. Number 27, a former lawyer who helps wealthy Chinese leave the country another non-Chinese and non-mainland Chinese. Number 28, a local Singaporean businessman, again, non-mainland Chinese. Number 29, a documentary filmmaker. Number 30, a former dean of Peking University's School of International Studies. Number 31 and number 32, two China specialists at Peterson Institute for International Economics, Washington, DC both non-Chinese. Number 33, a former party professor who left China. Number 34, a Chinese diplomat. Number 35, Chinese economist who fled China to go to Stanford University. Number 36, director of MIT's security studies program, non-Chinese. Number 37, head of a Chinese think tank in Beijing. Number 38, the U.S. Ambassador to China, again non-Chinese, and number 39, an editor. Talking to emigres who fled China to feel the heartbeat of the nation's people is odd. It reminds me of the funny observation by CWG author-journalist Raman Mazahari. He jokes that if you want to know how most citizens feel about Iran's Islamic Socialist Revolution, just talk to his grandmother who lives there. Yet the West big lie propaganda machine, the BLPM, invariably consults Gucci-shoed, mink-stole-wearing, Ferrari-driving Iranians in Hollywood who abandoned their people in 1979. It is safe to say that most of these interviewees can relate to Evans' privileged status much more than most of us can. Osnos would be comfortable talking with them and can relate to them. Many of them seem concentrated in Beijing and Shanghai, two cities I love, but are hardly representative of deep China, And asterisk, which I will uh, have a footnote about that at the end. Yet based on these mostly urban elite Chinese contacts and some other Western sources, Osnos takes a quantum leap in the name of China's 1.4 billion everyday citizens by claiming few citizens believe that China will reach the heights they once expected. Quote, the word I use is grieving, end of quote, one entrepreneur said. Osnos's contacts remind me of when I was traveling and working in Africa in the Middle East, 1980 to 1990 frequently going to newly liberated Zimbabwe. There was an initial exodus of white Rhodesian farmers, with many fleeing to still then apartheid South Africa and Australia. Locals liked to mock them, dubbing them "Winwees" because all they could talk about was, when we were in Rhodesia, Evans' contacts strike me like a bunch of Chinese wen-wees, pining for the excesses of the 1980s-1990s. As an apparent neoliberal, Asnos has a nostalgic idealization of what I call the Deng Xiaoping Wild East Buckaroo Days. My wife and I lived and worked in China in 1990-1997, becoming parents of two children, and then a double asterisk, uh, a footnote, which I will read at the end. As I wrote colorfully in the China trilogy, it was like a Nat King Cole five-pack-a-day nicotine habit. We knew it was terrible for our health and souls, but the hooks were dug deep into our flesh, and every waking hour was like a drug rush. After we left China for France, it took us six months to mentally detoxify from the buzz and the high. Dung and company let loose the street-level dogs of jungle capitalism while maintaining the large public sector of the economy. The motive was to respect the Marxian arc of evolution from late industrial capitalism to socialism and then communism, which is still the official plan by 2049. The West had 500 years to industrialize and become bourgeois, the Mao era was only one generation, thus with reform and opening up, the gamble was that this phase would replace what the West had done over a much longer period of time. Unintended consequences abounded. Everybody was, (laughs) it was amazing, everybody was lying, cheating, stealing, swindling everybody else. All to realize the government's exhortations to get rich quick, regardless of the social and, and environmental consequences, violating millennial Confucian principles, there was zero trust among the people and between the government and citizens. Corruption became a cancer in the public, private, and military sectors, smoothed over by 10% annual economic growth. Inflation hit over 30% and availability of everyday goods and foodstuffs became chaotic. It was, it was these three socioeconomic pustules that triggered the protests in 1989, not Gene Sharp's bogus CIA-contrived freedom and democracy color revolution. Organized gangs came back, crime among the citizens got so bad that the government recalled all the millions of guns the people had during the Mao era, for self-defense against possible war with the West. Laws had to be passed reinstating death, the death penalty for a number of lesser offenses. Thousands, tens of thousands of crooks were executed and imprisoned. When I visited Shenzhen, there were hookers, touts, and fast eddies every 10 meters on the sidewalks, hustling and jiving. It was like a dog-eat-dog gold rush down the Chinese had become a cynical, lawless mob of grifters, shysters, and petty criminals. If Evan and his elite interviewees want to idealize that 20 years of street-level warfare, where it felt like being forever high on speed, be my guest. As non-elites living and working in it, family in tow, it offers a completely different perspective. Maybe they miss the endless reruns of American TV shows like friends in Dallas, and all the other soul-sucking Western titty-tainment that flooded the country. Mercifully, when we we returned to China 2010 to 2019, that kind of foreign culture was flushed down the toilet. With my life experiences and much more modest upbringing and education, I talked to Chinese with whom I can relate farmers, factory workers, drivers, cleaners, teachers, repairmen, retirees, small shopkeepers, restaurant owners, waiters, cops, white collar workers, masseuses, TCM doctors, retail workers, in big cities and big and small cities, towns and rural villages. Would you care to guess which group of people, the aforementioned 39, or the socioeconomic level of citizens I talk to is more representative of the broad opinions and attitudes of the Chinese nation. The vibes and comments I got from traveling to Shenzhen in Guangdong province, Anhui, Hunan, and Guangxi provinces in the interior for two months in May and September and, and in May and September-October. Are the anti-universe of what Osno suggests in his essay. Admittedly, I did talk to two Shenzhen factory owners in the technology sector, the parents of Chinese students I teach online. They are very matter they were very matter-of-fact. COVID was a tough three years, it really cost them. But now they are back in the saddle and extremely optimistic about the future. When I asked one if he was investing in the Chinese stock market, he said he is waiting for now. He said US, Russia, tensions needed to play out in, in Ukraine, so maybe next year will be the right time to dive in. This was of course before the US's foray into Palestine, so it may be a while. Of of out of the scores of workaday Chinese I talked to, I got one real crank a disgruntled taxi driver in Shenzhen who was pissed off at the world. Most everyone else with true Confucian, Taoist, Buddhist aplomb said the three years of COVID lockdowns were tough. Now it is not the easy pickings it used to be, but they are optimistic about the future. From Shenzhen's 17 million citizens to third and fourth tier cities, in the interior like Hefei and Huibei and Anhui, to Hunan's provinces, incredibly youthful capital Changsha, to laid-back Guilin, down to small towns and villages in Anhui, Hunan, and Guangxi provinces, I saw the Chinese people humping, pumpin', and jumpin', a national beehive of productive forces. Some told me they were making ends meet, Others were working to buy a house, pay for their children's pending marriages, or get them through university, usually with a can-do attitude. Western pundits are obsessed with the Chinese, with Chinese workers lying flat, i.e. goofing off on the job to show their dissatisfaction with life. Among, among all the various kinds of people I met, the only time they have to lie flat is when they sleep. The Chinese people invented the much-bandied Western concept of grit 5,000 years ago. I wear a cute t-shirt with a cartoon image of Xi Jinping encouraging citizens to roll up your shirt sleeves and get to work. I like to wear it because it is a fantastic way to start conversations with strangers I meet in public. When we elites can cry in their wonton soup, but China's 99% are heeding Xi's message and not looking back. The Chinese have been preparing for this phase of the country's economic arc of progress for almost a decade when Xi Jinping began to talk about the new normal in 2014, meaning a transformed, more responsible, more reasonable socioeconomic model. The citizens were sick and tired of foul air, Foul water, filth everywhere, and the lingering dishonesty and corruption at all levels—public, private, and military—to cleanse the to cleanse the country of all that meant the need for new paradigms of governance and civility, and that could not happen with unfettered 10 to 12 percent annual growth. What happened is that with COVID, instead of slowly ratcheting down the double-digit growth over a number of years. It was forced down in three. 2023 is projected to have a GDP growth of 5.6 percent. This is by far the highest among major economies. North America, 1.6 percent. Western Europe, 0.6 percent. Japan, 1.4 percent. China's post-COVID new normal is working. According to the IMF, China's productive GDP is three times larger than number two USA. No wonder my factory-owning dads are so optimistic. Another boogie bear in his article is that there is a mass exodus of China's wealthy. First, there are 60 million overseas Chinese living and working in 198 countries and regions Since the start of the Silk Roads during the Han Dynasty, before the life of Jesus Christ, there has been an endless flow of Chinese leaving the homeland and those returning. China has 6.2 million millionaires, including 820,000 RMB billionaires, meaning they have more than a billion RMB, which is a US $137 million. <clears throat> According to Osnos, in 2022, China lost a net China had a net loss of ten thousand eight hundred net rich residents, or zero point one seven percent of the total millionaires and one point three percent of its billionaires. My response <sighs> yawn In any case, by 2025, China is expected to organically increase its millionaire club to 10.2 million citizens. So, the few who are not in solidarity with the people and leave the country, good riddance. Ditto the 300,000 Chinese who left the country in 2022. Others came back. According to the source below, currently for every 10 who leave, 8 come back. So, in reality, the net loss was only 60,000. I will let you d- divide that number by 1.4 billion to get the percentage. While only a project- projection, it predicts that the in out ratio will be break even by 2027. He also claims there is a brain drain out of China. However, statistics on the number of returnees with master's degrees to China show that as of 2022, there are 723,277 returnees with master's degrees from the United States, Japan, and Canada, an increase of 10% compared to the previous year. The year range is not given, but 723,277 returning master's graduates is a 10% increase over 2021, so that would be about 72,000 per year, not including Europe. This adds about 10% to the usual 700,000 masters graduates each year. Returning PhDs, Baba Beijing, my avuncular name for the country's millennial paternal Confucian governance, is going all out to court them back home including providing financial subsidies, employment training, employment guidance, employment services, etc. Overall, about 32,000 PhDs return to China annually, to add to the 72,000 PhD graduates each year. Seems to me that the brain drain is in the other direction, away from the West. Osnos wrote, China has all the airports, and railways, and factories, and skyscrapers that it can justify. Seriously? China only became a major urban population in 2014 and and now stands at 65%. The USA passed its halfway mark in 1920, 100 years earlier. China will need another 10 to 15 years to reach its... its desired level of urbanites of 75 to 80 percent. Hundreds of millions of citizens need cities, housing, commercial space, transportation, etc. It is easy to forget that China has 1.4 billion citizens occupying a country the size of Canada or the USA. With these stats, China continues to not have enough infrastructure. Also, there are still big developmental disparities between the wealthy coastal zones and the poor Western interior. Baba Beijing does not want more urbanization in the prior, so it is building up the ladder to attract economic activity there to better balance the country's population. What I saw in the interior was proof of this vision. See below. Not only that, but even more urban infrastructure will, will be needed to create five mega, mega clusters, each with around 150 million citizens. Everywhere I traveled in China, from the biggest cities down to the smallest villages in the interior, I saw nothing but wall-to-wall infrastructure going up and out. Westerners cannot think beyond the next quarterly report in three months, To satisfy the venal lust of all the preferred and a-share stockholders among the officers and board members. Baba Beijing has a vision going out 30 years to improve the lives of all the people. Osnos used as an argument that economically poor Guizhou province, which which is the size of the state of Missouri, USA, has 11 airports, thus that is enough. I'm not so sure. Guizhou has a population of 38.5 million to Missouri's 6.2 million, over six times as many inhabitants. How many airports does Missouri have? Eight. Bloated state-run companies? 82 of the Forbes Global 500 companies are Chinese state-owned enterprises, SOEs, more than half of the 143 Chinese companies that grace this list, the country with the most listed. As just one example, the four biggest banks in the world, and they are massive, are Chinese. Industrial and Commercial Bank of China, Agricultural Bank of China, China Construction Bank, and Bank of Communications. I wrote an article about them not long ago SOEs may have been bloated in the 80s and 90s, but now they are world beaters. Osnos also claims soaring debt. China's debt is half as large as the USA's as a percent of GDP, 68% versus 128%. Per capita, China $7,164 versus the United States $88,697. China's central bank governor, Pan Gongsheng, says the debt level of the Chinese government is at the mid to lower level internationally. He just told the Financial Street Forum 2023 in Beijing that small banks exposed to scores of bad loans account for a very small portion in the financial system. Not to mention that the world's biggest national financial sector is 99.9% Chinese citizen-owned, no Wall Street, City of London dictators dictating the terms. A crackdown on education? About time. The battle for China's for Chinese children's minds has been ongoing since the titty tainment 1980s, 1990s. Before the government, the, I'm, I'm sorry, before the foreign NGO management law was passed in 2017, thousands of them, including George Soros's many color red fifth, co- fifth columnists, insinuated themselves into China's education system and textbooks. Citizens began complaining to Baba Beijing about seditious and trashy content in the school books, and it spread all over social media. Parental suggestions poured in. Textbooks got an updated makeover to fully represent traditional Chinese and socialist values. The texts describing the Mao era were more made more objective. At, especially previous criticism about the Cultural Revolution, all of which I wrote about. This is due in part to many ranking Chinese leaders who experienced firsthand the Great Leap Forward and the Cultural Revolution, such as Xi, Premier Li Keqiang, and previous President Hu Jintao, among many others. As Xi likes to say, he left a boy, and after the Cultural Revolution, came back a man. The other major reform was that all private schools had to become non-profit. Over the years, two classes of Chinese students developed the vast majority going to local schools, and wealthy families sending their kids to private international ones, mostly with English and other European language curricula. With investors demanding double-digit returns, quality became secondary to cookie-cutter outcomes, with parents assuming their children were getting their money's worth costing up to $35,000 per year per child. I know because when my wife and I returned to China 2010 to 2019, we were teaching in them. To help equalize this class disparity and take the go-go motive away from greedy investors, all private schools had to become nonprofit in 2021. One subject I am mostly in agreement with Osnos is the high youth, and that is 16 to 24 years of age, unemployment rate, last reported as 21.3% in July-August. This is clearly Baba Beijing's biggest headache, and if not resolved, could have longer term and or unintended consequences. I did not meet anyone in this category, but at one in five, they are out there. This is a topic I will be following attentively in the months to come. Are foreigners suddenly worried about investing in China? Or is Bapa Beijing learning to live without them in the new normal? Foreign direct investment, FDI, is falling and exports are down in 2023. But is it, but is it part of the new normal war footing plan? Baba Beijing knows that the West will apply sanctions like the ones Russia has been pummeled with since NATO started to try destroying it via Ukraine in 2022. Russia has done splendidly in its efforts to become self-sufficient since then. But for China, why not prepare now? Again, for the fastest growing major economy in the world and the most productive, it should be much easier for the Chinese than for the Russians. Besides falling FDI and exports, war preparations are also seen in Baba Beijing's feverish promote promotion to boost domestic consumption. The Chinese are the biggest savers among large economies with a 45.9% rate. The U.S. is 17.8% and the French 14.2%. Harking back to the Mao era, China needs to be prepared to be cut off from much of global trade, so domestic consumption will have to take up the export slack. All the many observations Osnos makes about a more hostile reception with foreign businesses and a tougher anti-espionage law is all more proof that Baba Beijing is preparing for the day when the West has declared hot war and China will no longer be able to count on FDI and huge exports just like what the West is trying to do to Russia today. It bears repeating Baba Beijing's policies and behavior strongly suggest it is preparing the people for a Mao era redux to batten down the hatches, be self-sufficient, to hell with capitalist West and working with reliable, trustworthy partners. Like Mao Zedong, to do this, the people are rallying around their leader, Xi Jinping. This brings us to Taiwan province and interviewees suggesting to Osnos that El Supremo, Xi, could launch an attack on the island to save his sinking presidency, sick, SIC, SIC. another hoot and a holler. Baba Beijing will avoid a hot war at all costs to regain Taiwan province because time is on the mainland side. Public speeches state that the PRC will be made whole by 2049 when the people celebrate their centennial liberation. That is a generation from now. In the meantime, a hot war would hamper the nation's development and infrastructure, technology, environment, and on and on. The mainland will only take the offensive if Taipei declares independence, or NATO strikes first. I always point out that 5% of Taiwan's people, 1 million strong, live and work on the mainland, and they are not washing dishes or driving taxis. They are mostly in the managerial, entrepreneurial, engineering, uh, technology sectors, and have billions of dollars invested there. Want to bring Taipei to the negotiating table really fast? All all Baba Beijing would have to do is cancel 10 or 20,000 residents slash work permits, sending all those owners, managers, and their families packing. The loss of all that business activity and sudden influx of those Taiwanese would collapse the uh, uh, the island's economy without the PLA needing to fire a shot. The BLPM will never tell you that for China's leadership, the country has been at war with the West since 4 September 1839, the start of the first opium war. Baba Beijing, since the founding of the Communist Party of China, the CPC, in 1921, always frames the country's modern era as beginning on that day. China's textbooks and media talk about the country's Road to rejuvenation beginning with this Nader, and the following 110 years are still painfully called the century of humiliation until communist socialist liberation in 1949. Ridding the country of western Japanese and Chinese fascists in 1949 gave the people their liberation and freedom but Korea 1950 to 1953 in Southeast Asia, nineteen fifty-five to nineteen seventy-five, demonstrated that the West war against China never ended. With Deng Xiaoping whispering exactly what the West capitalist class wanted to believe—that China would rapidly become a continent-sized resource whore, like Indonesia or the Democratic Republic of Congo—there was a ceasefire from nineteen eighty to twenty eleven. And let's face it, China got the very long end of the global economic and trade stick during that period with GATT and WTO. Thanks to Westerners' delusional hubris that the entire world is dying to be just like them. What happened in 2011? The BLPM will never tell you this, but the West war against China went hot again with Obama and Hillary announcing NATO's pivot to Asia. That is how Baba Beijing still sees it. Why? Since the end of World War II, China is increasingly surrounded by US military bases. I wrote a satirical piece creating a mirror map of China surrounding the USA with bases to empathize with what the Chinese see happening. Even before 2011, Baba Beijing was already leery after the blatant 2003 SARS and, uh, and then later plus the 2019 SARS-CoV-2 bioweapon attacks uh, by the West. By the time she was elected president, the Mao era's self-sufficiency philosophy, independence from the global capitalist economy, and highly successful anti-Western moxie became prerogatives. Enter Xi Jinping, the 21st century Mao Zedong. By chance, President Hu Jintao's 10 years in office ended in 2012, just a year after NATO's pivot to Asia. Of course, the 3000 member National People's Congress, the NPC, the 300 member Central Committee, the 25-member Standing Committee and the nine-member Politburo Standing Committee had been discussing who to elect as the next president. Xi Jinping had already been a member of the Politburo Standing Committee since 2007. Clearly, from the NPC on up, the leaders had five years to observe Xi in action, including his including has overseen the incredibly successful 2008 Beijing Olympics. Other candidates were surely discussed, but with Obama, Hillary, and NATO swarming to Taiwan province, Japan, Korea, and the South China Sea, Xi's CV made him the obvious choice to get back the much-needed Mao-era visionary backbone to survive and thrive. Living and working in China at that time, I remember reading articles in the BLP, by the BLPM's China experts. Former Presidents Jiang Zemin and Hu Jintao continued to seduce Western capitalists with Deng's reform and opening up sweet nothings while continuing to hold the party line to avoid becoming a color revolution vassal. These experts were high-fiving when it was announced that Xi Xi had been elected president. Why? Xi Jinping's father, Xi Zhongxuan, had been branded a liberal liberal do-gooder by all these so-called Western experts. Why? Mao Zedong tasked Xi's father to negotiate with Xinjiang to be reincorporated into the newly founded People's Republic. It took several years, and since it was done without firing a shot, Xi father became a darling of the West, especially since Tibet returned to China with the People's Liberation Army, the PLA, marching onto the plateau. Then in 1978, Deng Xiaoping tasked Xi Zhongxuan with tackling Hong Kong and how to stop Shenzheners, at that time a town of 20,000 fishermen and sea salt harvesters, from going to Hong Kong. Xi Jinping's concept was brilliantly made simple. Make make Shenzhen even better than Hong Kong by turning it into a special economic, an SEZ, free trade zone. He humbly credited his boss with the idea. Deng is everywhere in Shenzhen and there is only one small photo of Xi Jinping in the Municipal Museum. Still, Western Sinologists got wind of the story, and now Dad was being touted as a freewheeling neoliberal capitalist. Well, surely if Xi's father was a liberal softy and a neoliberal, then son must be too. (laughs) That kind of self-congratulatory hubris can cause disappointments. (laughs) What they failed to consider is that to be commissioned by Mao Zedong and Deng Xiaoping, a pair of hardcore communists to their last dying breaths to take on two extremely sensitive projects then succeed and win their praise and that of the people logically means he was not a softy capitalist. Baba Beijing did not elect Xi Jinping because he was going to be China's Gorbachev and sell out the people to Wall Street and NATO. They elected him because they knew he had what it takes to be China's 21st century Mao to defeat Uncle Slaughter and its global Wehrmacht. It is almost comical how SMS writers transform in lockstep the West's enemies' leaders into cardboard cutouts. Dell comic fiends! From Lenin to Stalin and Mao to Xi, the descriptions become lurid and fantastic, like, lumbering James Bond-esque Frankenstein evildoers, hell-bent on snuffing out humanity, barking a two-word command, Everybody dies! Then dramatically pressing the blinking red button. Osnos is no different. I will let you read his article to see what I mean, but one passage jumped up and slapped me in the face, and that was, Why did the Soviet Communist Party collapse? He, she, asked, according according to excerpts that circulated among the party members. One reason, he said, was that the Soviets' ideals and beliefs had wavered. More important, though, they didn't have the tools of dictatorship. Tools of Dictatorship? She's comments about the USSR have been widely circulated since they were spoken in 2012, but this was the first time I ever read the Tools of Dictatorship line. A search on the web shows that Evans' article is the only place it is found. I cannot access some paywalls, so maybe it is referenced, but what has been published for the last 10 years is this. The lessons she took from the Soviet collapse, retain tight control of the military, do not make reforms that undermine the party's power, and make no unforced errors, which is exactly what has happened since then. Nonetheless, to paraphrase these three recommendations as tools of dictatorship, if that is what, has, if that is what happened, is dishonest propaganda. In any case, the idea that a Chinese leader can be some kind of demonic strongman El Supremo is laughable, including Mao Zedong. With thousands of leaders in the NPC, the Central Committee, Politburo, the massive China People's Political Consultative Conference, not to mention vying regions and provinces, all with egos and expectations, Chinese governance has always been Confucian and consensual going back millennia. Autocratic, tyrannical emperors like Qin Shi Huang are few in number and they are frowned upon by historians. A careful study of Xi's career path clearly shows that his style of leadership is consultative. That characteristic he definitely got from his dad. To claim she has removed term limits on his rule, flies in the face of how a very functioning and rule-bound government works. The term limit law was amended by the NPC, then they voted on it, next it was approved by the Central Committee, and then approved by the Politburo's. The entire process was again done to modify the Constitution, as well as the absurd notion a decade into Xi's campaign for total control goes back to the Delcomic El Supremo theme. Mao Zedong had to sell his ideas and get consensus She is no different. Another favorite MSM chestnut is to say that she has stocked the Politburo with trusted aides. Like it is some evil plot to surround himself with yes-men. How many Trump supporters does Biden have on his team? The thought is ludicrous. Any leader worth their salt does the same as she: collaborates with people they know and trust. Remember that one of the three lessons she learned about the fall of the USSR was to retain tight control of the military. The previous military leader in power was Deng Xiaoping and before him Mao. Neither President Jiang Zemin nor Hu Jintao were military men, yet Jiang kept tight control over the PLA after leaving office, which really hampered Hu's administration. This was a big source of corruption in the military, and clearly the NPC and Central Committee knew that it could not continue. The fact that she and his wife were already PLA officers and had cultivated contacts Throughout the military for years was probably another deciding factor electing him as party secretary, president, and by fault chairman of the Central Military Commission, the CMC, which is like the U.S. Joint Chiefs of Staff. Claiming that she cultivated the military by boosting investment and replacing top leaders with loyalists, making it his personal army, is only partially true. Being a military officer, she knew that the PLA was a long way from being able to win a modern war with NATO. China had to plan for a hot one. Investing, modernizing and radically changing the military commands along the lines of the US's rapid response structure was not to curry favor. It was to be ready to fight and win wars, which she and company publicly announced frequently. Of course, he replaced much of the top brass, who were corrupt, with his honest and trustworthy loyalists. What leader in their right mind would put their corrupt enemies in positions of power? She's personal army? Ever since Mao Zedong, it has been an ironclad rule that the PLA owes its allegiance to the CPC and the people. The people command the party, and the CPC is in command of the military as party general secretary and chairman of the CMC. It is colorful propaganda to call the PLA his personal army, but he is clearly the boss. He has transformed the military in incredibly positive ways and has brought back high morale among the troops, not seen since the Mao era. China is ready to go to war when NATO makes that decision. It must be said, Xi Xi does not help himself. He definitely has a low Q score. He moves slowly, speaks methodically, rarely smiles or laughs. He is all business all the time. Mal had more charisma in his little finger than she does in his entire body. However, despite Evan's typical BLPM character assassination, she is popular among the people I talk to, especially getting credit for cleaning up corruption across the board. They call him Lianjie, meaning honest and uncorruptible. He also gets plaudits for bringing Chinese culture back into the mainstream while jettisoning all that Western titty-tainment. Osno sees evil that Xi launched an, quote, anti-corruption, end of quote, campaign that grew into a vast machine of arrest and detention. China has investigated and punished 4.089 million people from 2012 to 2021. Well, based on what I heard from the citizens I talked to, they'd be happy for another 4 million crooks to get the same treatment. The lingering hangover of the fetid 1980s and 1990s still looms large. This explains why the government's campaign is still pedal to the metal with detentions and punishments go ongoing. Unlike previous anti-corruption campaigns, which were sporadic and too brief, Xi has promised the people that the fight against corruption, be it private, public or military, will never cease. <clears throat> Proof of its success comes from Dongping Han and Mo Bogao, see below, who do extensive field work in several Chinese provinces. They both say that pre-she, corruption, in other words, corruption before she, has, all, has been all but wiped out, less some petty, local corruption like alcohol, cigarettes, and banquets. They say the local government authorities admit they may have been involved in or tolerated corruption around them, meaning bribes, but now they are afraid to even consider or condone it since oversight is so withering fellow CWG members Dongping Han and Mo Bo Gao grew up during the Mao era and are now full professors at US and Australian universities respectively they have written books about their youth <laughs> the great leap forward and the cultural revolution which i can highly recommend since that time they continue to do field work in rural china interviewing hundreds of farmers Rural factory workers, retirees, and village government representatives every year. I met Dong Ping in Hong Kong in May, attending a conference on Chinese labor, and he was going right after that to the mainland's boondocks. They both say that Xi Jinping is by far the most popular leader since Mao Zedong, second only to their 1950s, 1970s great helmsman. That being, of course, Mao Zedong. Do not tell that to the West BLPM. USSR history author Grover Furr told me that you cannot get published by a major media company unless you automatically conflate Stalin into an insane, bloodthirsty, psychopathic, genocidal terrorist. Regardless of the facts, it is obvious that the same expectations for China's leaders are no different. Writers like Maurice Meisner and Jonathan Spence admit to some of the successes of the Mao era. Nevertheless, by the time Mao becomes a young adult, instead of teeth, he is portrayed as having mossy-covered fangs and his hands are turned into blood-dripping claws. And he spends his days trying to figure out how he can mass murder another million citizens this week. I fell for that propaganda when when I wrote the first book, of the China Trilogy, but after much research and reading, corrected myself in the next two volumes. It takes a lot of courage to stand up to the West BLPM. 99% of writers and journalists know their place, what they cannot write, and what they must say. They are like trained seals, barking tricks and balancing balls on their noses so they can pay the mortgage, get on TV, receive MSM awards, and write for the big name media outlets. Members of CWG often call them factotums and stenographers. James Bradley published four best selling books. A Seek Truth from Facts Director, all those years of research put him on a path of seeking truth and justice. Even if it meant displeasing the establishment, our sixty plus podcast show our sixty plus podcast shows are proof that James is not backing down. There are a few out there. The Greenville Post is a CWG member. The editor Patrice Cronville got his graduate degree in economics at a big-name university in New York. Because of his brilliance, even back in the 70s, he was getting six-figure salary offers from Fortune 500 firms. Instead of compromising his principles and taking easy street He worked for pennies helping unions with their books and financing while immediately jumping into anti-imperial writing uh, and publishing and has never looked back. Pepe Escobar is a CWG member who has evolved over the years. Formerly an edgy, more mainstream writer for Asia Times, he has since become one of the most powerful anti-imperialist voices in alternative media, with NATO trying to destroy Russia and now the Arab world. His thunderbolts are increasingly speaking hard truths to establishment power. He could have led a comfortable life riding for the BLPM, but gave it all up to fight the good fight for the global majority. Paul Craig Roberts was an Assistant Secretary of Treasury in the Reagan administration. He could be making boatloads on the speaking circuit and getting wined and dined in the MSM. (coughs) But world events outraged him. He threw all that away and is now a powerful anti-government tyranny author and journalist. More inspiration comes from Michael Parenti. He got his PhD at Yale, all set up to be an MSM darling. But obviously the deans did not like what he was teaching America's future imperialists, so over the years he moved from school to school. 20 books and 300 articles later, He sacrificed the big bucks to stick to his anti-establishment convictions. A number of his his eye-opening lectures are on YouTube. As a Christian minister, Pulitzer Prize winner Chris Chris Hedges hewed to his religious convictions. A graduate of Harvard and then working at the New York Times, he refused to perform their seal-barking tricks and was forced out he has since become one of the leading anti-imperial, anti-war authors and journalists in the West. All the aforementioned Bravehearts and several others are my inspirational heroes. As for me, I backed into my career as an author journalist by accident when I traveled across China and ended up writing 44 days backpacking in China. At 69, surviving on a modest retirement income continuing to teach online to supplement it and getting extremely limited donations for my journalism, I can maintain my principles and passion with nothing to lose, not wanting a frosty impact with the BLPM to ladder climb. As I look out my window and gaze at the D-Day beaches of Normandy, I recall the wonderful French aphorism, a clean conscience makes for a soft pillow. I sleep well at night. Two footnotes, the first asterisk about Beijing and Shanghai. I love the crude Chinese joke about the three most important provinces. Guangdong supplies the brawn as the manufacturing hub for planet Earth. Shanghai offers the brains and culture as the country's financial center and cosmopolitan face to the rest of the world. And what does Beijing offer? really big testicles as it has the will and force to keep the other two provinces under control and the rest of the country on target and then the other footnote about 1990 to 1970 i was a high-flying businessman for two outfits for for the first one i was country director for a grain trade office Highlights included brewing Sino-American beer with Qingdao Brewery and conducting aquaculture trials on the PLA's farms. Next, I was the general manager of the first mainland McDonald's bakery, which I installed, opened, and ran. Those were the buckaroo days, all right. Thank you and goodbye.